This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Jordan Morningstar. Jordan is an MD-PhD candidate at the Medical University of South Carolina. He was previously a research assistant for four years at Boston's Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, where he contributed to six peer-reviewed publications. Jordan's research interests primarily relate to cardiometabolic disease and the identification of biomarkers, which can predict various conditions. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. It's good to be with you. So first, I wanted to just get a big picture of, of your experience in medical research. Um, as I kind of gave in your intro, you've worked heavily in cardiometabolic disease. So could you just give us more insight uh, into your background there? Sure. Yeah. So um, I got my degree in chemistry from the University of Michigan. Um, And what I learned early on there was that um, in in order to really get a job out of undergrad, I mean, I, you know, I was graduating right around the time the recession was, it was just about, things were just about starting to get better. And there weren't a lot of jobs available for, you know, bachelor's of science and chemistry degrees. And so I, I was, I was kind of coming at it like, okay, with this degree, what can I do for employment? And thankfully, like towards the end of college, I took a class where we went over mass spec, which mass spectrometry, which is a type of analytical chemistry where you measure um, basically the masses of, of analytes, chemicals of some kind, and you can quantify them. And, and, you know, the technology has a diverse set of applications, but I became interested in it because um you could do a lot with it with, you know, with medicine in mind, you know, you could use this technique to really um, analyze, you know, human samples to better understand the chemical profiles of blood and things like that. You know, I could go on for a year about, about the applications of this technology, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit. But I kind of came into it from that angle where I was like, there's not a lot of jobs in industry for chemists. Um, and I wanted to do something, you know, that use my hands to, you know, uh, to like kind of investigate problems. And, and the other criteria for me in, in employment was I was really interested in doing something that had, you know, real world impact for real people. Um, I, I didn't know what it was going to be at the time, but I found um, a lab when I was at Michigan um, run by a guy named uh, Charles Barant, who's a, and he's an MD, PhD endocrinologist at the University of Michigan. Um, and he does what's called metabolomics, which is measuring small molecules, basically, you know, chemicals of, of various kinds in the human blood and actually in other biological t- uh, tissues. You can do it in ground up liver. You can do it in cerebrospinal fluid. You can do it in urine. You can, you can, you know, take a biological sample of any kind and analyze it for the chemical profile and quantify the various chemicals in it and then look at how these chemicals change in various disease states. And he was coming at it from, from an, you know, f- with a particular interest in obesity and diabetes and how, how the blood changed under these conditions. So I started out in his lab just as an analyst, you know, out of college. I did a summer research project with him doing kind of database work, trying to identify unknown, um, unknown masses, you know, that, that were measured kind of incidentally in human plasma. And that, that summer work translated into, uh, you know, a, a undergraduate research project where I developed a method to analyze 
um, low abundance steroids in human urine um, using what's called gas chromatography mass spec, which is a, a kind of a coupled analytical chemistry technique where you you uh, you put things into the gas phase and then you blow them up effectively and measure the fragmentation pattern that they make. And so th that that kind of experience, and then I did you know a year after undergrad working with his group doing kind of routine analyses for um, for what's called the Michigan Regional Comprehensive Metabolomics Resource Corps, which is a, a core service offered at the University of Michigan for anyone who wants to do metabolomics uh, studies in their research projects. They can go to U of M and U of M will work with them and help them to kind of develop an experiment and, and perform it and get the data. And then they can kind of help them interpret the results and and move forward from there, which the, you know it's a really cool service that that Michigan has, and a few other places around the country have it as well. Um, and so from there, I moved to Boston uh, when my girlfriend got a job, actually, um, and I went with her. And she, so she was working uh, downtown in Boston, and I didn't have a job when I moved to Boston, but I f uh, I found work when I emailed a, a, a faculty at at he was at Mass General at the time, Dr. Robert Gersten, who. Um, who does metabolomics investigating kind of early markers of cardio cardiovascular and metabolic disease. So, you know, can we identify people who are healthy and have no problems, you know, on paper that are going to have uh, a myocardial infarction or are going to develop diabetes in a decade? That's kind of the, the, the goal behind his research. And so I spent a lot of time in his lab working on that. Um, myself and uh, John O'Sullivan, who's now at the University of Sydney in Australia, um, we worked together on a project where we identified a molecule which we called DMGV that um, you can actually um, quantify levels of this and it correlates really well with levels of fat deposited in the liver, what we call liver fat. And this molecule also predicts diabetes in, so it's elevated in people that go on to get diabetes a decade later. And we found that in, I think, two distinct cohorts of, of, human, uh, of humans, which was kind of an interesting finding. This was, you know, this was the, the whole goal behind the lab, or, or, you know, in Rob's lab, is to identify these kind of early biomarkers of cardiovascular disease and metabolic disease. Um, and that was, so that was my kind of main contribution to this group. Other than that, I was um, one of two of the people who were running day-to-day metabolomics experiments in Rob's group. Um, so I did that for four years. I got a lot out of it. It was a really great experience. Um, and, and I highly recommend anyone who's coming out of undergraduate and has kind of medicine in mind to, to go through a two, you know, two year or so research experience. I think it's a really, uh, really great thing to do. Um, and I, so I, like I said, I kind of wanted to do something that had human impact and, and had, you know, would affect people's lives uh, in, in whatever work I did in the future. And so the, the research, um, you know, it got to a point where I realized like I, you know, I wanted to get, go to graduate school. I wanted to eventually have my own research lab. That's kind of my career goal. And medicine was the way for me to go about doing that because in, in, in biochemistry and in biomedical research, I, I have the opinion and I'm sure other people will disagree, but my opinion is that um, to really get the best toolbox to investigate these diseases, you need to have some clinical training and some ability to interact with patients and work with patients, because I think it and the research side of things both really inform one another uh, 
when it comes to kind of establishing a new knowledge base and making new discoveries in medicine. Thanks for sharing those parts of your medical and, frankly, life journey. I definitely want to get back to a lot of those things later. But first, I want to look at the medical research process as a whole. So, and really touching on the, the, the logical flow of how these things occur. So, could you outline the process by which um, an idea kind of starts in the brainstorming process and progresses through research and then so that it can eventually become a reality uh, in a clinical setting? Sure. So, um, I mean, it can take many different paths to get from, a you know, an idea in the lab to an idea in the in the clinic. I think the way that the way that you hear everyone talk about it when you're, you know, when you're in like a, a scientific talk or something is this there's this kind of bench to bedside um, mentality where, you know, we we notice clinicians, I should say, clinicians notice sort of shortcomings within the medical system. You know, maybe a, like a good example would be cancer, you know, pancreatic cancer. Let's use this for an example. It's it's hard to diagnose pancreatic cancer at its early stages when it would probably be the most treatable. And most of the time, we don't actually catch it until it's very late on, right? And so the, the, the shortcoming is we don't know, there's no good way of screening or trying to, you know, trying to find pancreatic cancer until we are, you know, until it's almost too late for people who have it. And so, so this idea, this is something that people would notice clinically. And then, you know, these ideas go to the lab where people say, okay, how can we, how can we, how can we develop new techniques to try and identify, you know, you know, identify pancreatic cancer earlier? Is there, is there chemicals that the tumor secretes that we can measure in the blood? Is there a characteristic image? Can we get, you know, more high resolution imaging um, to look for it? Is there new symptoms or signs or, or, you know, various findings in people that we can identify early that might indicate they have something wrong like pancreatic cancer? Um, and so then, you know, these ideas, basically, this is where the discoveries are made is, you know, in the, in the lab, in the, uh, in the, you know, in the, uh, in what we call the basic science lab. Um, and so, you know, the, of course, when you make a discovery like this, you have to really hash it out because when you're applying it to clinical practice in a patient's, you know, you want to be really sure that a, that it's effective, B, that it's not going to, in the case of of a biomarker of pancreatic cancer, you want to make sure you're not going to overdiagnose pancreatic cancer and subject a bunch of people to, you know, unnecessary chemotherapy or something like that to treat them. Um, so there's a lot of kind of, uh, you know, work that has to be done to shore up the discovery to make sure that it's, you know, that we're, we're doing something that's both able to tell when someone has pancreatic cancer earlier but also isn't going to um, over, you know, overestimate the number of people that has pancreatic cancer. And so you have to do a lot of this kind of follow-up work. Um, you know, the, the, the clinical, clinical trials are kind of what you think of when you're going through this phase. You know, another good example would be like people discover a new drug and they're trying to take it to market. You have to prove that the drug is not going to kill people and that the drug's actually going to help treat the disease that it's intended to treat. And so you do this by doing randomized controlled trials, looking at is the drug better than a placebo? You know, can you, um, you know, what toxicities do we see with the drug? Is there a certain dose that we start seeing these toxicities at? Is there a dose where we don't see any efficacy of the drug? 
Um, and so you got to do kind of a lot of this legwork, shoring up, getting all the necessary data to eventually show, I think it's the, in the case of drugs, it's the FDA to show them that you have a drug that works. In the case of biomarkers, I actually don't know who you would demonstrate that to. Um, but eventually what you get, if you, know, if you can prove that, that whatever discovery you've made is actually you know, not only providing kind of a clinical benefit, but also isn't providing a clinical risk or the risk is much lower than the benefit, so to speak, then you have, you know, now you have a discovery that's made it to the clinic. And, the, you know, the unfortunate truth of the matter is I think, I don't know the exact statistic, but a lot of the discoveries we make in science don't actually ever get as far as the, the clinic, just because the amount of rigor and stuff that they have to go to go through is so, you know, so intense. And, and that's, that's probably good that it has to go through all this. We don't want to hurt people, right? We want to, we want to be really judicious in, in how we bring discoveries to the clinic. Um, but, you know, you can imagine that even some, you know, I'm sure that there are examples of some really, you know, potentially novel and exciting therapies or, or you know, or, or diagnostics that just because of the massive amount of work that has to be done to get them to the clinic, they don't actually make it there. But yeah, that, you know, it's, it's, it's an exciting process to say the least. I, I know that, you know, what, what experiences I've had working on it have been really quite fun and quite, ex, you know, exciting from an intel from a, an intelligence standpoint, you really learn a lot while you do it. So, so going off that, um, overview, what does, uh, from your experience, what does a research, uh, lab look like in terms of personnel? Um, you're going for an MD PhD, so I'd imagine, um, somebody with those credentials would kind of be uh, making a lot of important decisions, but you need a variety of personnel in that setting. So could you kind of talk about the, the different levels of, of, of people that you have and, and what kind of roles they play? Sure. So, so because, you know, biomedicine is such a diverse field, I'm sure labs can take many different formats, but I'll tell you about the labs that I've been in to kind of illustrate you know, my, at least my understanding of how it works. So at the top of the hierarchy, you have your, what we call the principal investigator or the PI, you might've heard that term before. Um, and that's the, you know, the, the usually in, in my case, that would have been an attending physician, um, you know, a kind of, you know, usually like well into their career, well-established investigator. Um, they're the ones who are writing grants for the lab. They're kind of the, you know, the ship's captain, so to speak. They, they're driving a lot of the projects. Um, you know, they're uh, having weekly lab meetings where we all kind of discuss the findings. They're putting in uh, grant, you know, putting in grant applications to try and get funding to continue to do the research. They're the ones, you know, uh, in many cases writing the papers. In other cases, editing the papers and and you know, kind of preparing them for for the the uh, paper, you know, the paper review process. Um, so under the principal investigator, you have the, there, there are kind of two, the, my, my experience has been there's two sort of wings of the lab. Actually, you could argue three even in, in, my, in my experience. So one would be this, the scientific staff, which is the, you know, these are, are your, your staff scientists, your research technicians, really the, the, the engine room of the lab. They're the people gathering the data. They're the people designing experiments you know, um, doing the actual like day-to-day -day work to get the, the, you know, the data that then gets discussed at lab meetings. 
Um, my, you know, my role in that was the research technician. So I would run, you know, mass spec studies for two weeks straight where we would get, you know, thousands of patients blood analyzed. I would, you know, quantify the data in a, in a mass spec analytical software, you know, quality control it, make sure everything looked kind of, you know, looked legit. There were no issues with the run. We didn't have any weird drift that we had to correct for things like that. Um, you, we, you know, we had the people who would do, uh, animal studies. So, you know, your mouse, uh, mouse workers, your, um, I actually worked with a group, not directly. They were in, um, in California, but they had a rabbit department where they would, you know, do experiments with rabbits. Um, you have your cell biologists who run, you know, the, the, um, experiments on, you know, cultured cells, um, things like that. So, so kind of anyone in really in the data acquisition process. So then the second, the second wing of the lab would be the graduate or, you know, the, the, the graduate students and the postdocs and the kind of the, you know, the career research staff or not, well, the career research, um, I don't know what the term, I guess the best term would be, but these are the people who um, are in academia. They're, you know, they're in the case of postdocs, they're aiming for faculty positions. In the case of graduate students, they're doing graduate research. Um, this is where I'll be when I next go into a lab setting. Um, but these are the people who are um, kind of assembling the data produced by the the um, the research staff and interpreting the result, kind of doing the initial interpretation. They're trying to develop hypotheses. They're trying to, you know, see if the results fit in with, with previous hypotheses they made, if they can, you know, if they can put together stories based on all the data, they can write, they're the ones kind of writing the papers. So they're the, the, the true, I would say the true intelligentsia, the really the, the deep thinkers of the lab. And then the third arm, at least in our case was the clinical staff. And so we had, you know, you have, uh, clinical research coordinators, people who are um, going in, they're enrolling patients into your studies, you know, consenting patients. You have your, uh, uh, your nursing staff that's, that's doing this. You have your um, clinical research coordinator and, and your, what do we call it? The senior clinical associate or something like that, who is in charge of basically maintenance and, and making sure all the samples were, you know, were organized, were Put together, she was the one coordinating with other labs to get samples sent to us so that we could run them. And so these these are the people that are actually, you know, when when the lab really is interacting with patients, they're the ones doing it. And so that was kind of the main structure of of my last lab that we had. Um, you you also have a sprinkling of um, maybe in between these kind of three these three sub tiers in the PI, you might have a few. Um, higher level kind of assistant or associate professors who are, you know, doing kind of similar work to the, to the postdocs in the lab, but maybe taking more information and more stuff. And they're starting to write grants and stuff like that. You kind of have people aging out and into that role. And then eventually they're going to leave and start their own lab. But yeah, so that was the structure that the structure that our lab took. That seems, um, the, the big word I feel like in research these days is interdisciplinary. And what you're saying kind of with the, the three wings, I think, fits into that idea of a lot of different types of people coming together and sort of, you know, collaborating on a big project. Can you talk to the advantages of that in the sense that you get a lot of different ideas floating around, but also at the same time, the disadvantages where I'd imagine people don't see eye to eye, especially when they have different 
uh, research styles? Sure. Yeah. And that's a great point. Interdisciplinary research is really the, the way things work because frankly, no one has the entire, you know, the knowledge base to really know everything and do everything in a lab. From my experience, you know, we had, I couldn't do mouse work. So we had someone who could do mouse work. Um, we had a statistician who was good at, you know, doing large stat- statistical analyses that I would have no way of doing because I have no training in statistics. Um, we have, you know, a cell biologist who's doing that work that I couldn't do either. I'm, you know, I myself was a mass spectrometrist and no one could, no one really knew how to do that work. So, so the point is, is that, yeah, to really make it work, you have a, a largely interdisciplinary staff all working together. Um, I think that was very helpful for two reasons. One, you get a lot of experience working with people of very different backgrounds. And I think that's crucial now that I'm going into the clinic. Well, I should say now that I will eventually be going into the clinic, you know, during my training here in MD-PhD, you're going to be working with people in all sorts of, you know, you're going to be working with respiratory therapists and nurses and physical therapists, all, you know, people of all and, and other, you know, other clinical departments, other medical, you know, other doctors and other departments. Um, so being able to talk maybe even just on a face level about whatever it was that those other people are doing was, I, I thought, something that you gained pretty quickly from working in this interdisciplinary uh, area. And I thought that, that it was very helpful for the conductance of research because you could, you know, I couldn't do statistics, but eventually I knew how to interpret statistical analyses well enough that I could have an intelligent conversation with people who were doing statistics. And I think that really helped the research go forward. Um, so I think to speak to the downsides a little bit, you're right. I think you can have some disputes because I think some people are just used to to doing things slightly different, but I think that the, the downsides to interdisciplinary work far, you know, they're far more insignificant than the upsides to it, if that makes sense. Maybe I'll just kind of, uh, interject and perhaps it's not even the, the fact that the people are different. It's just that you have so many people working on the same project that it's like you only have such a small piece of a big pie, you know? Yeah, right. And and I think that can definitely be the case. Um, in in many cases, you actually need a large amount of people because, you know, it, it, it is such a big pie and there are so many things to do. And so, you know, my in my experience, sometimes, you know, the hardest part about it sometimes is just that you think something's much more important than someone else thinks it is. Um, because it's, I don't know, maybe it's concerned with your area or something. And so, so that can, you know, that can be a little bit frustrating, but, but I think, you know, it, as far as things go, it's, it's, like I said, it, the, the, the conflicts and stuff that arise are, are much less significant than I think the upsides that, that interdisciplinary work offers. So I wanted to talk to you about what you said, uh, regarding the PI, um, you said he was or he or she would be responsible uh, for funding and grants. Can you talk about the the pro- the like what goes into funding a big research project, um, and perhaps kind of the the red tape and hurdles associated with with getting that funding? Yeah, so I, I can I can only speak to it a little bit because unfortunately I just haven't been all that intimate in the process myself. I've I've worked a little bit on on polishing up sections of grants and things like that, but. I, I can only imagine that a lot more goes into it than what I've done. Um, so to get funding, you know, the, the, the way it works is you submit proposals under various, you can actually submit them to many different uh, f- 
funding organizations, but the, the traditional one that people think of is the NIH, the National Institute of Health. And the kind of the traditional research grant is what's called an R01. Um, and that is, I want to say, $250,000 over uh, a year for five years or something is like the funding structure. So you get a quarter of a million dollars a year to fund the lab to do whatever project it is you're looking for. And these are direct costs. I don't actually know what that means. I just know that that, that was always a big deal whenever we talked about it at, at, uh, at research meetings. But so... So you you to write to write a grant and to get a grant funded you have to you know you have to basically summarize why this research is important you have to give some information kind of the you know the background of of what the study was so you know for our lab it would have been something along the lines of cardiometabolic disease is a leading cause of morbidity and mortality in the United States you know diabetes is increasing in prevalence obesity and other things are driving this um, you know it's it's now estimated that like a third of Americans have, you know, are obese and are at risk of developing diabetes or cardiovascular disease. And despite this, and despite all of the significant, you know, strides that we've made in medicine, you know, with, with understanding lipid biology and, and um, CRP and other biomarkers, there exists a large portion of Americans who will go on to have cardiac events, even though we don't, you know, even though they don't have any of the traditional risk factors. And so then you would, you would propose experiments that you're going to run. So you'd say, this is what I want, you know, aim one, aim two, which are the kind of broad overarching experiments that you want to run with the funding that you get. And then there are, you know, kind of specific aims of, of each of the general aims that are more geared towards, as I understand it, more geared towards kind of the specific experiments that you're going to run, the specific questions you're going to ask. Um, with those experiments. Um, so you have to, you know, talk about why, you know, what it is you're doing. These are the specific things we're going to be doing to get at these, these larger questions. And then you have to talk about the limitations, you know, the risks, experiment design, um, all of these various things. And, and it kind of, you know, it goes, it goes on from there. I'm sure, unfortunately, I, I don't have a lot of experience in that. I know some other things you need, you know, if you're trying to do human studies, um, you have to have what's called an IRB protocol, where, which is the institutional review board. So um, ethically, we have to be able to say that all the experiments we're doing on people aren't going to cause them any harm and are safe, right? And so this is very important, obviously. Um, so you have to put together a protocol. This is what we're going to be doing. Even if you want to draw, you know, draw blood from someone, you have to do this. If, you know, if the extent of your experiment is just taking a fasting blood sample from them when they come to your clinic. You still have to submit a protocol saying, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And it has to be approved by your institution in order to do that. So that's kind of the, those are the two things that I were, that I'm familiar with as far as going about getting funding goes. Um, it, it is, the, the last thing I'll say is it's, it's, it seems that a lot of the, the faculty that I, I've worked with spend a lot of their time writing grants and it's, it's. It's important, obviously, you have to keep funding the lab, but I think that, you know, one of the things that I guess would be unfortunate about that is then they, they have less time to be actually focused in on the research and working to, to try and make these, you know, these discoveries, and they have to spend more time trying to basically bring in money to keep the lab running. But that's why you get people. I'd like to shift gears a bit and talk about your, your personal experience in, uh, at Beth Deakness, um, or Beth Israel. That's a weird... Weird uh, title there, Beth Israel Deaconess. 
Yeah, it, it, they, they, they formed it that, so there was a Beth Israel Hospital in Boston and a New England Deaconess Medical Center, and the two merged, and they called it Beth Israel Deaconess. Is there a Beth Israel in New York, too? Is that right? I, I would imagine. It's, it's kind of like, you know, Sacred Heart or one of these other, like, I feel like there's a lot of hospitals that have a similar name to that. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I actually, I was... There was definitely a hospital. I was watching Friends. I Great just show. actually finished the season, uh, the whole uh, the whole ten seasons actually. And uh, somebody gave birth in an Israel hospital. So, I, I think I think it actually was maybe Beth Israel, because um, I think I know what you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. We I'll, we'll we'll have to fact check that one, I guess. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So it it sounds like a lot of your work has surrounded the biomarkers and you said uh when we were just talking about the the structure of a, a lab that you were uh primarily doing mass spectrometry is that how you pronounce it spectrometry <laughs> spectrometry yeah there's a spectroscopy as well i've heard people call it mass spectroscopy that's not right i've never learned it that way maybe back in the 20s they <laughs> called it that but so you were doing you were working as a research technician doing uh mass spectrometry could you kind of just elaborate on your day-to-day of what you'd be doing? Sure. Yeah. So um, I would come in every day and, you know, it it, it depended on the week and, you know, what the experiments we had on the docket were, but, but in a, in a, in the most traditional sense of what I would do, I would come in, you know, we would be in the middle of a, of a two week run where the machine's running 24 seven analyzing samples and so the first thing I would do when I get in in the morning is check the machine, make sure that nothing had happened overnight, that it stopped the run. And so that was always the kind of the most nerve wracking part of it. Well, there were two. The, this was the first nerve wracking part. The second was looking through the data and making sure nothing weird happened to the data, which is much more nerve wracking. Huh. But so I would come in the morning, I would check the mass spec, make sure everything was looking good, see where we were in the run. You know, often we would have maybe 15 or 20 samples until it finished the, the, um, the samples that I'd prepared for it to run the night prior. Um, and so I would find out, you know, when the run was going to be finished, I would, um, put the data that had been generated overnight onto a flash drive. I would check the peaks, you know, look at the, the chromatography that we were, that we were analyzing and make sure that, that it looked good, that nothing had happened, you know, no clogs in the, in the column had caused peak shapes to change or anything like that. We would do a quick quanti- qual- uh, quality control where we would quantify what we call internal standards, which are basically they're basically compounds, uh, chemical compounds that we added to our samples in a fixed concentration. Um, that you know they they're they're chemically different from endogenous chemicals in that they're usually uh, refined isotopes. So you have like a carbon thirteen. Uh, like a glucose with carbon 13 replaced. So normally glucose weighs, I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but let's say 171. This glucose would weigh, it would have six 13 carbons. So it would weigh six higher than 171. So it would weigh 177. And so you could, you know, it would, it would behave chemically exactly like glucose would, but it would weigh more. And so you could differentiate it in the data from regular glucose. And what this allowed you to do is since you added it at a fixed amount, you, you would be able to say, okay, this should look the exact same every single time. And so we would quickly look at the data, make sure that it did, make sure that it was, you know, when, when we quantified it, it was making a straight line across our Excel spreadsheet. You know, if, if you were to do a plot of injection number 
versus peak area. It would make a straight line. And if it was, then everything went well with the prior night's run and we can kind of proceed with the next day. So what I would do is, you know, we would have, we would get some ice buckets, lay out our ice buckets. We would um, label a bunch of little one and a half milliliter glass vials with the numbers corresponding to each sample. Um, we would basically get all of our reagents and all of our sample preparation uh, materials out. So pipettes and, you know, methanol, chloroform water, uh, well, methanol acetonitrile uh, extraction buffer with internal standards. Um, and then when it came time to actually prep the samples, we'd go to the minus 80 freezer, pull out the first 30, let it thaw on ice. Once it's thawed, we'd add the, you know, the extraction buffer, crash out all the proteins, vortex mix it. So you stick it on a little thing that shakes it really fast and then stick it in the centrifuge at 14,000 G for 20 minutes. Um, and while that was spinning down, you'd get the next batch of samples. You do the same thing. You kind of get a rhythm going. We would prep about 106 samples a day because um, that's about how many this, the machine could run over, you know, over the, the course of 24 hours. Um, and so we would prep the samples. Um, and once they were ready, we would go put them on the machine and the machine would basically just continue through the run as if, you know, as if nothing had happened, you know, you, you'd already submitted the sample, the sample work list at the beginning of your run. So, it, you know, it was say it was on sample 256, you'd put samples 257 through 357 on the machine and it would just continue to run them. So that was the, the data, the data uh, or the sample preparative part that usually took about two hours to do. So two hours of an eight hour day. Um, for the rest of the time, I would be doing data analysis typically. And so this was quantifying peaks. You know, we, we have what's called Mass Hunter qualitative analysis, where, which is a, a software made by the company Agilent that makes the mass specs. Um, and it, 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 it's, this, part of the, this part of the work was a little bit mind numbing, but it was very, very important because you, know, you have to have good quality data. But basically what we were doing is you were checking through each peak of each sample so each metabolite in every sample to make sure that the peak shape was good, that the peak was, you know, it was integrating from point X to point Y exactly how you wanted it to. Um, it wasn't picking the wrong peak. Sometimes you have two in a window and maybe the correct one is at three minutes and the incorrect one's at 2.6 minutes and it's picking that one just because the software glitched and so you wanted to correct that. Um, so I would do this and this would, this was generally the kind of the most time consuming part of the entire analysis was quality controlling the data. So you would run through that. It would take basically the rest of the day when you were in the middle of a run. And then once you'd done that, the, the fun part really was once you get the data out of the software, once you get it, you know, you would, you would uh, kind of look at the overall trends of the data, make sure that, that the internal standards were stable. You had kind of a flat straight line going across in each sample. Any samples that, that had deviated from, you know, if the internal standards looked weird or we had data that looked kind of questionable on them, we would rerun them. And eventually what you're left with is a huge data set containing, we had runs as small as 10 to 15 people. We had runs as big as, I think the biggest one that I ever ran was 2,268 patients. Um, so we would have, you know, 2,200 patients maybe 120 to 150 known chemicals measured in all of their blood. 
And so you have this big Excel spreadsheet that you can then give to your statistician who can do all sorts of cool stuff with it. Um, and then, you know, every, so once a week we would have lab meeting where you would present, you would present the quality control of this study and maybe your, um, your postdoc or your, uh, or your graduate student would present the, the kind of interesting findings that they'd made from, from that data set. So maybe they found glucose was strongly associated with diabetes. Well, you know, I mean, of course they would find that because glucose is diagnostic of diabetes, but but they would, you know, they would show kind of interesting tidbits from the data. And we would kind of, as a group, discuss them and, and think about maybe the next experiments we could run. A lot of what you're saying uh, definitely brings back nightmares of uh, chemistry lab when you'd pull up your Excel doc and, you know, the data points would be all over the place and you're scrambling and you kind of have to, you know, fudge, uh, fudge the data. But I'm sure you do it. I'm sure... Your, your processes are much more uh, ethical and professional. So, Yeah, thank, thankfully, we, we use good reagents in our lab. I remember the worst part about undergraduate chemistry was they'd give you a, you know, a bottle of N-butyl lithium and say, okay, you're going to do this experiment with this. Be careful. It lights on fire if you get air on it. And the thing was so badly decayed that you would, you know, you'd dump the whole bottle on the, in the middle of the room and nothing would happen, you know, so that the reagents were all total duds and you wouldn't get any of your experiments to work. This, they work. They work quite well, as a matter of fact. So I just wanted to ask one more question about um, your work with biomarkers. And it has a long name, DMGV. What's the actual? Uh... Yeah, it's. Uh, let me see if I can get this right. Alpha Keto Delta NG NG Dimethylguanidino Valeric Acid. Okay, yeah, what he said. Um, so for... Obviously, what you do is is very technical, and um, right. What should your average Joe on the street know about biomarkers for cardiometabolic diseases? Oh man, um, a very philosophical question that you ask. So, I, I think the ones that everyone knows are your blood lipids. So your you know your your LDL, your bad cholesterol, your HDL, your good cholesterol, triglycerides. Um, most people know of that. That's that's like you know, those are all under the umbrella of they're considered biomarkers too. And well, I yeah, I I guess I don't know. It, it we consider them. You know, they're the, they're markers of. I, I think they're the way that I would the way that I would say it is that blood high blood LDL is associated with a increased risk of having a cardiovascular event, and and that's kind of what I think of when I think of biomarkers. The, the, you know, the, the, the golden goose, so to speak, would be a chemical that is elevated only in a specific biochemical, you know, biomedical situation. So for example, if you have pancreatic cancer, there would be one chemical that is 10,000 times higher than it is in normal people in a patient who has pancreatic cancer. That's kind of what a biomarker is supposed to be or what we want to have in a biomarker. The reality is, is that this is almost never the case. I don't, I, I can very infrequently think of a biomarker that actually works that well. Off the top of my head, I'm sure there's like a very obvious one that I'm forgetting, but, but off the top of my head, there aren't very many that fit this bill. Um, more commonly, more commonly, it's more like any of your other clinical labs where you might have a patient that has three or four things that seem abnormal you know, if you get a basic metabolic panel on them and that indicates that something's wrong and you can, 
you know, fit that into a clinical picture and make a diagnosis from there. That, that's kind of the way it seems to work more often. In, in the case of our lab, what we were trying to do is identify, you know, the, the, I think my boss, Rob Gersten, his like big, big discovery in our lab before I was in it was um, branch chain amino acids are biomarkers of diabetes that they, they predict diabetes development in patients, something like 12 years after, you know, after they become elevated. So they're these early markers of insulin resistance that, that then I think people have validated that finding many times over. But so the idea would be that you can, you can in normal, healthy patients in your primary care office, you can do a measurement of, in this case, branch chain amino acids, or in, in my case, maybe of DMGV. Um, and if you have a patient with elevated DMGV or elevated branch chains, you could say, okay, this is, this is concerning. They're, you know, they're, they're fine right now. They don't have outright disease, but we know they're at risk of disease. And so we can try and get them to eat healthier. Or we can try and get them to exercise more, do some of these, these you know, interventions to try and mitigate some of the risk that they have. That's kind of the goal. That's what we're trying to do. Is our bio biomarkers essentially just related to your genetics, though? Like, if you have a certain gene, you'll have a biomarker, or not necessarily. Uh, that's a great question. So, so they're kind of it all. They're all interrelated, right? Biomarkers to me are the the end product of your genes and your environment kind of interacting together. So, you may have totally normal levels of a certain chemical. Um, if you, even though you have a gene that should make you have like an increased susceptibility to disease. But what, what it requires to get the disease is you, not only do you have this genetic vulnerability, but you also have an unhealthy lifestyle or you're doing something that then causes metabolic dysregulation through that pathway and maybe then will elevate the levels of that chemical. And you know, it, you'll, it'll demonstrate you're at risk for, for having disease or you, eventually you'll get the disease. Um, so it... it in many ways, a lot of the blood chemicals that we're measuring are kind of genetic markers. You can actually find, we did a paper in 2013. Um, I want to say the title of it was a genome-wide association study of the human metabolome in a community-based cohort, where they did basically what's called a genome-wide association study, where you correlate levels of your metabolite to variants of the human genome. And you can actually map levels of metabolites back to um, to genetic, you know, uh, to specific genes. Um, so it, obviously there's an interplay there. Obviously your genetics are, are putting, you know, increased levels of the chemical into your body. But, you know, a lot of these diseases, particularly things like diabetes are very complex and there are kind of genetic and environmental factors that contribute to it. And so kind of the reason that we're interested in doing metabolomics and looking at metabolites for biomarkers is because you're kind of able to integrate all of this information and measure it in a single chemical, right? And so you can you can quantify not only their genetic risk but also their environmental risk based on the chemical. I mean, it's it's that's a really idealistic way of saying that. Of course, there's a lot more inf you know a lot more work and a lot more kind of investigation that has to go into it to really hash out what these chemicals are doing because in many cases we don't really know. But that's kind of the you know if I were to to say it in an elevator pitch, that's how I would say it. I'll hit you with a. Uh more of the human side of the podcast here does looking at human health through the lens of rigorous medical research uh make you lose lose sight of like the the holistic view the 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 view of the whole person and how we're just kind of more 
than a sum of parts? That's very interesting and a very interesting question. So I, I, I think that's, it's really hard for me to say right now because I, I, I wish, this is what, one thing I'm really excited about with the MD-PhD and with the career going forward is that I get to work with people and you know I get to work with patients and I get to know them and I get to, to chat with them and understand who they are as a person, not just their biochemical profile. Because in, in research, it, it, it is easy, I think, to lose sight of maybe it's not you don't lose sight of why you're doing this. You still know that we're doing this to help human health. We're doing this to improve patient care. But you de-identify all the samples, right? You, you don't know whose blood you're looking at and stuff like that. And for, in many ways, that's good that you don't because it eliminates all possibility of bias. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, when I'm doing the, the studies, you know, it's very easy to sort of, you know, oh, you know, we had 400 patients that got diagnosed with diabetes and, you know, that's not a huge deal to the researcher. That means you have, you know, maybe enough N for you to conduct your analysis. But if you think about that, that means 400 people got diagnosed with a, with a significant illness that they're going to have to live with for the rest of their life. And, and I think it is easy to lose sight of that. Um, so again, I think that's one of the exciting things about these MD PhD programs and, and the, the one that I'm doing is, is that, you know, you do get to work with patients and you do get to have that human connection in your work. But even even beyond the human connection, even though, you know, beyond acknowledging that I'm working with Joe, 47, who has type 2 diabetes and like kind of getting to know his story in your in your eyes, are there also just kind of like factors that are not incorporated into your studies um, that are a bit more that are a bit less, you know, like, say, for instance, like like stress levels or things that are a bit more qualitative as opposed to, you know, quantitative and and that are more like about the whole person as opposed to just saying, you know, like these specific things that we can measure. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because that that actually leads to me to an interesting anecdote about my experience with metabolomic research. So um, that is an incredibly difficult thing to capture without quantifying it into data in some form. Right. Unless, you know, you can't, yes, like most of the time in the patient's chart, even with the EMRs these days, we don't have information like, you know, this patient's stressors and, you know, what they do for work and things like that, you know, things that actually do play a role in their, you know, in their, in their health and in their, in their risk of disease. I mean, you know, because of it, you can even, you know, even if you do have a record of it in the EMR, you generally, it's going to be written out by the physician, you know, you won't necessarily input it into some, some data set, and it won't become a number and you won't be able to run a statistical correlation with it, right. And so you can't look at how these things might be playing a role. But we actually had one experience where we could do this, which was in, so in a, a, a study that I, I was participating on, um, in my old lab, we had, um, I, I forget what the, this, the, um, screening questionnaire was called, but it was a screening questionnaire for depression. And so patients rated, you know, on a scale one to 10, like how much they agreed with the statement, like, you know, overall, I feel a lot of stress in my life, or I, find my relationships have a lot of strain in them or, you know, statements like that. And so they would quantify it, you know, on a scale one to 10, what they, how they felt. And so we actually did a metabolomics correlation to that. 
And I think the most interesting tidbit from that was, I mean, you can, as you can imagine, the, the, the associations of metabolite levels to these kind of, you know, these very um, abstract and very subjective research questions weren't incredibly strong. I mean, we didn't have p-values that would, you know, blow you out of the water. Um, but what we did find was the highest associated metabolite with things like stress and stress in relationships was a metabolite called cotinine. And cotinine is actually the metabolic product of nicotine that it, you know, that is produced by the body when, you know, nicotine gets metabolized. And so you actually can see, you know, it, it makes sense if you think about it, right? A patient who's really stressed, you know, we, when I, you know, when I think of really stressed people, I think of, you know, they're aggravated, they're, they're, they smoke cigarettes because cigarettes help them to cope with the stress or, or whatever, you know, what, for whatever reason. And so we, we can actually capture that in metabolomics data. So, so I think it will be an interesting thing to see how that evolves going forward. If we can figure out how to code these kind of emotive things into the EMR, then we can analyze them and look at them from a research standpoint. Um, and I'm sure some people, you know, some people are doing this, like they're, there are people that are analyzing, you know, depression questionnaires and looking at socioeconomic health, but it's it's on a it's a very public health level kind of analysis. We haven't really gone to the level of looking at it with biochemicals. I think actually there may be studies looking at it with genetic markers. I I, I can't say off the top of my head, but that seems like something that actually might be being done right now. I, I think that's definitely something that's gaining a lot of steam right now in our society is looking at more of you know, just things that aren't as don't fit so nicely into certain metrics, right? Um, and kind of incorporating that into our health research, which is an exciting development for sure. I was just going to say the only other thing about that is I think you just need to have a lot of patience to really be able to capture the because the associations are very soft in many cases. So you just the key to this is just going to be big data sets, right? Yeah, I guess you're kind of alluding to people wanting to draw kind of these. Uh, soft connections between things when there's really no causality there. Right. Yeah. So I'll, I'll hit you with uh, one more research question than a couple of fun ones. Um, sure. So do it's, it seems like in these, these projects that, you know, you, you run an experiment, but perhaps there was some sort of oversight or, you know, you just want to investigate one more part of this. Do, do these, uh, you know, research projects ever come to an end or or do they just kind of keep rolling uh do you do you see like is there a set end in mind when you start yeah that's a good question so the i think it 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 depends on the project some projects the end is the paper but generally uh and some projects the end is that the experiment fails and you've run it seven different ways to saturday and you can't seem to get it to work so so you just call it um in most of the cases uh, it is sort of a perpetuating machine, right? So you make you make a discovery, you test the hypothesis, you validate it, you get all this supportive data, but that opens ten new questions that you can answer. And so you might publish all of that that you found in the paper, but now you get to go investigate the next ten questions with the next grant or with the next you know phase of the research project. And so you know people have people spend their lives you know, 40 years, 50 year careers, like investigating discoveries that stemmed from their initial finding that they made in their graduate thesis or something like that. And they, 
they build other people's careers off these findings. You know, a lot of the the postdocs in in you know in a faculty's lab might you know they're working with him on this project. They might develop new techniques and develop you know make new findings, and then they'll be the one that takes the findings that they 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 uh, they made and and you know takes that to the next level and starts investigating those findings. And so yeah, it, it really is sort of a perpetuating machine, and and. And I think that's for the best. You know, we learn a lot, and and it's good to have you know new questions when you make answers, or when you when you you know answer other questions. You know, it's good to get new questions from that. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, the the limiting fi- factor might be the grants too, right? Where just kind of the the money runs dry, and you can't keep on going. Well, right, and sometimes you know, I mean, the unfortunate thing about that is that some people just don't think what you're doing is worth pursuing, and so you might have something that you think is really fascinating or might, you know, we don't really know what discovery is going to end up changing the world. Right. Um, so someone might say, yeah, I don't think that's going to really do it, but for all we know, I mean, you know, maybe you'll make the next huge transform transformative discovery in your experiment about leeches. Right. We don't know. Um, so it, it really is. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the times that, yeah, the end of the, the end of the ball game can just be that you can't get a project funded. So I know you were uh, on the the crew team at Michigan, yeah. And I've heard this kind of uh, I don't know folk tale that crew teams at Michigan and perhaps elsewhere just kind of attend, you know, different welcome week festivities and just pick the tallest guys out to to join the crew team. Is that can that be verified by uh, you? Yeah, that's basically exactly how it went, actually. So. I'll, I'll put an asterisk there and say I wasn't on the crew team for all that long. My twin brother rode a little bit longer than I did, and my little brother actually rode for all four years in college. So he's the true rower of the family. I did it much more briefly than than they did. But yeah, the the way I the way I learned about it was I was at there was like a eating event at Michigan. You know, it was like you got the ta- the taste of Michigan. I think it was called where they had all the local restaurants come and give you a little taste of their food. And like two six foot six guys came up to me holding an oar and, and I was with some friends who were also tall and they were like, Hey, have you guys ever wanted to be varsity athletes? <laughs> and I had, I had rowed in high school also. So I sort of, I had known a little bit about how to do it. And I, I really did love the sport. And so I, I kind of was like, Oh my God, these guys want me like <laughs> me to row. Yeah. Oh, great. Let's do it. And so I, I went to tryouts because of that. Yeah. It was, it was cool. I mean, they, the men's rowing team at Michigan doesn't have any uh, any varsity funding, so they they basically have to you know they they can't recruit people to go join the team. They have to go storm the campus and find the athletes, and it, it it's really interesting. Mo- you know, I think crew is one of the very few sports that you can actually have a team of ninety five percent walk ons. Yeah, uh, I I'm five foot seven, so needless to say, I wasn't uh, turning any heads on campus. <laughs> But for the crew team, <laughs> you know, some of some of our best guys were were not much taller than you. I mean, well, maybe the best guys were a lot taller than you, but we had some very very strong guys who were you know av- average <laughs> height even. Yeah, no, I I knew a couple of girls on the crew team, and they were kind of uh, one and dones as well. I think they were all fed up with the uh, four thirty whatever wake up calls. Yeah, it does you in, um, and and. The yeah, the Michigan women's rowing team—they're very good, also. So they have, they have—it's very competitive, and they have a very tough training protocol that they go through. So I can only imagine that. I mean, 
good for them for even handling through that. But oh boy, yeah, it's it's tough. I know you uh, also speak French of sorts. Uh, not not anymore. I used to be able to speak pretty good French, but uh, I went to Grenoble for my final semester at Michigan, and by the end of it, I was just just fluent. And then I came back and haven't spoken it since. <laughs> uh, I was gonna, I was gonna see if you could drop a line like "Medicine Man" is the best podcast in French, but uh, I, I can do that. L'homme de médecin est la meilleur podcast de la, de la monde, which is "Medicine Man" is the best podcast in the world. And I hope I got the gra- the 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 grammar right there, but no guarantees. <laughs> well, uh, Jordan Morningstar, merci beaucoup. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.